Well, come on back and uh, grab your Bibles. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and Jared will get you one. <laughs> if you don't need a Bible, then turn with me to the 11th chapter of the book of Job. Job is really broken up into three sections. The first two or three, some people think, uh, books are kind of the beginning and give us the situation and the background. And then Job 3 or 4 through 37, chapter 37, we have a bunch of dialogue, this, these debates or these conversations between Job's friends and him, and then Job talking to God. And I want you to remind you of something. We have distinct advantage sitting here today reading the book of Job than Job did. (laughs) And the reason we have a distinct advantage is twofold. One, Job wasn't, it's really a rare book. Job wasn't privy basically to the first two chapters. (laughs) He didn't know what was going on in heaven, and he didn't get to observe God talking with Satan about Job and his life and God and the beauty of his holiness and who God is. And Remember, Satan blasphemed in a sense, I guess, spoke out against God and said in verse Nine, I think it's good to remember this of chapter one. Satan answered the Lord and said, Hey, does Job fear God for nothing? And that's his way of saying, You know, you, you're, you're talking and bragging about Job here, Lord, but if you strip Job of the gifts, he'll curse you and die. And you see it, man. He loses his, Job loses his property. He's the greatest man in the East. He's really wealthy. He's just stripped of all of this stuff, including, and then including, or I guess not including, but in addition to that, 10 children die. 10. And, Job doesn't curse him. In fact, Job arose, tore his robe, verse 20 of chapter 1, shaved his head, and can you believe this sentence is in the Bible? And fell to the ground and worshipped. He worshipped for God. He worshipped God for his goodness and his beauty. He didn't understand everything, but he just worshipped. And in all this, Job didn't sin. And then in chapter 2, Satan says, well, that's all well and good, but if you, he says, he uses the phrase skin for skin, if you attack his person, well, it'll be a different story. And you know he's got all these boils. And actually, if you read the whole book of Job, he had lots more than boils, folks. I mean, I mean, he had shakes. You'll see it. He had diarrhea. He 
was just terrorized and anxious and you'll read it. We'll, we'll go through it and you'll see it. And he actually goes from the greatest man in the east to sitting on the ash heap. And remember, where they threw the city waste was on the dung heap, that he was sitting in a pretty bad place. And he was using broken pots and pottery to scratch himself. And then the death blow, man. (laughs) Here it comes. You know, his wife, who he's been rowing with and in the same direction and built, bringing those kids up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. He, he was a person who sacrificed daily for his kids and his wife supported him and she just said, you know what, just curse God and die. It, it would just be better if you just died. Whew. You imagine the emotional toll this must have taken on Job. And then his three friends, wow, they start out so well, don't they? You read the first part and you go, wow, amazing, good friends. They come and they just sit with him for seven days. They just sit with him right there on the heat. They get right down at his level. They sit with him and they don't speak and they just are there together. What a great picture of how to minister to people. Just be with them and love them. And chapter three, then Job goes on and deplores his birth or despises the day that he was born. And we went through all of that. And then he starts out with his three friends, Eliphaz and a guy named Bildad. And tonight we come to a a fellow by the name of Zophar. And they've all been cruel. And the reason they're cruel is they got just enough theology to be dangerous. Because much of what you're listening to and hearing from them, you're like, man, that's right on. But they don't give you the entire story of the Bible or theology, and so it becomes really rigid theology and harsh theology because as Job is pouring out his heart over the things that are happening to him and the things that he's dealing with with God, they're not really listening to him. They're not listening to his heart. What they're doing is they're forming their arguments theologically that they can hit back with. And their theology, remember, is this. That if anything bad happens in your life, the reason something bad has happened in your life is because you have some hidden sin. They haven't quite come to terms yet with the fact that sometimes there's just some unwarranted suffering. Now, Folks, I've said this several times. There's different reasons for suffering. You know, you reap what you sow. That's a principle. If I go down to the local bar and drink 15 beers, four shots, pray to the Lord, Lord, help me get home and, I mean, not hurt anybody. Well, the, it's probably going to happen. I mean, it's, I'm reaping what I sow. Sometimes we just live in a world that's fallen and things happen, like when that tower fell on people in the book of Luke, things just happen sometimes because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes God sends some things, right? He puts us into the storm (laughs) because he's developing you for all eternity in me. He's developing us for all eternity, but sometimes there are demonic attacks. Of course, for the Christian, We can't be possessed, folks. Greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world. We can't be possessed, but the enemy can go at us. 
He throws fiery darts. You also know that there's an indirect demonic influence. You know where it is? It's right in your living room. <laughs> it's the world. We pipe in the world every night. Tink. Hey, turn that on and let's watch the news. <laughs> and in comes the worldly system of thinking. And the enemy has an influence on the world, and it's a world system of thinking. So there's a lot of different reasons for suffering, but in this case, we know the reason. The enemy, because, uh, under God's sovereignty, has attacked Job. So we know it. We know it in this book. But here's the funny part. Job doesn't know it. You get that? He doesn't know why he's suffering. We do, he doesn't. The other reason we're uh, in a better position than Job is because we live on this side of the cross. And we started to examine last week, did we not? This beautiful passage in chapter 9, verse 32 and 33 for he is not a man as I am that I may answer him and that we should go to court together, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his head. Oh, if he just had a mediator, one to grab the hand of man and one grab the hand of God and bring us together. And the first ever written book or the book that's the oldest in the Bible, already there's this hope that's coming out of people for a daysman, a mediator, and there's only one mediator we know on this side of the cross. It's Christ Jesus between man and God. And now we can come into his presence. Isn't that wonderful? We can come boldly. You could be in your classroom. You could be, you know, uh, uh, you know in sociology. You don't have to run down to the temple and, and bring a goat and have its throat slashed and all that sort of thing. No, no, no. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ right there in sociology, you could just bow your head. Come near. You could be at work. You could be in your cubicle. You could be out on the softball field. It doesn't matter. By the blood of Jesus Christ, you and I, we have this amazing privilege that many of us rarely take advantage of, and that's to come boldly in prayer with the Lord. Isn't that incredible? So we have those advantages. And now we get into the last of the first cycle of dialogue between Job and his friends that happens between chapter 3 and chapter 37. Remember, most people love to focus on the first part of the chapter and they love the end of the chapter. They love, it's, it's interesting, it's like life, but the middle we just kind of want to skip through. It's just like life. We can learn stuff when we first are in a trial. And man, when we come out, oh, we can learn. But we just want to skip the middle part. But the Lord says, no, 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 no. Right there in the middle, I'm forging and fashioning you into the uh, image of my son, which is more important than gold or diamonds or rubies or 401ks or anything. That you're coming more Christ-like. Isn't that beautiful? 
And so here, that's where we find ourselves. We're right in the middle now, right at the middle in between chapter 3 and chapter 37, right here in this dialogue. Here's the third friend. Oh, that we would never have friends like this. And yet, you know what? I kind of goofing around, but I got to tell you something. I'm convicted when I read these guys. Because when you start laying your suffering on me, you know what I do a lot of times? Start thinking. How can I answer them back? And I wonder, do I do that to the detriment of connecting with people's heart? Turn with me over to the book of James. Go into chapter 1. I hope I have better luck at finding James than I do Daniel. (laughs) What'd you say? (laughs) That's funny. Okay. (laughs) She's going to start telling me the uh, pages all the time because we have the same Bible. Okay, go to verse 19. Chapter 1, James chapter 1, verse 19, and listen to this. That's my funny joke because you listen, listen. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man and woman, let every person, how about this, swift to hear. That's that word that means like when you run fast or do something fast and strong and powerful. And here James says, be really powerful, fast to hear. Not just have the, you know, the vibrations come into your ear, but to just take it in and connect with the person And don't talk over them. Let them talk and let them be swift to hear. Be powerful in your hearing. But, bro, be slow to speak. Just relax for a minute. Isn't it like what God's saying? At least it's how I feel he's saying it to me. Just just relax. People are hurting. Slow to speak. Look, look, Look at this. You ever got angry with somebody who wasn't getting it? Oh, just me. Okay. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Don't get angry, Tim. Be patient. Be kind. Explain again. It doesn't produce the righteousness of God. No, what it is is listening and being patient and letting the Lord work. Isn't that great? So now you get number three, the youngest of the old men, Zophar. Here he is, the Naamathite, verse 1. He answers Job after Job goes on his big dialogue. And now Job has started to use a, a number of different court terms. Literally, he's using terms that come from the legal world all throughout this section. You just pick them out. It's amazing. And he's pleading with God about his situation. And now it's Zophar's turn. Here we go. Maybe one of the most cruel things of the Bible said to another person. Zophar, the Naamathite, answers and said, should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? For you have said, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes. But oh, that God would speak and opened his lips against you. Verse 6, that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know therefore that God exacts from you, this might be the meanest thing said in the Bible, 
Know therefore that God exacts, exacts from you less than your or excuse me, iniquity deserves. <laughs> You're getting much less than you deserve, in other words. Can you imagine saying that? Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They're higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by, imprisons, and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? For he knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it for an empty-headed man? Will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. In other words, you're so stupid, you're never going to be smart. That's what he's saying right there. Can you imagine? If you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, if iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear. Verse 16, because you would forget your misery and remember it as waters that have passed away, and your life would be brighter than noonday. Though you were dark, you would be like the morning, and you would be secure because there is hope. Doesn't that sound religious-y? Piousy? Those aren't words I know, but I'm being cheeky here. He sounds so, man, I know what I'm talking about. You'd have hope. Yes, you would dig around and take your rest in safety. You would also lie down and no one would make you afraid. Yes, many would court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail and they shall not escape and their hope, loss of life. Here's what he says. You're a windbag, buddy. You got all these words and they're full of nothing. The things that you say have no meaning to them. Can you imagine telling somebody in pain that, giving them that response? Now remember, what leads to this? What leads to this is an incomplete theology. God is good. He's perfectly just. You're suffering. All suffering is bad. Therefore, you must have something in, the, in your life that's hidden, and you won't admit it to God, and therefore, you're suffering. See, the faulty assumption there, though, is that suffering is bad. The Bible doesn't speak of suffering being bad. Christians who are, live in America speak of suffering as being bad. Americans speak as suffering being bad because we're used to comfort and luxury and being on our own and those sorts of things. You know, just living our life and not hurting anybody else. No, no, no. Are we an island unto ourselves? No, we're not. We're, we live in community and we love one another. And suffering brings us into fellowship with Christ. We know that from the New Testament. But that's their theology. And so, yes, sometimes sin has an impact in somebody's life. But they're wrong in this case, folks. He's a blameless man the Bible tells us. That doesn't mean he's without sin, by the way. It means he deals with his sin on short accounts, and he's mature. So there's nothing hidden in his life. He's been confessing these things. He's been asking the Lord, and he's been sacrificing as, as, as he could. Get it? Everything you talk about is full of nothing. Could I not say anything to you? How could we, as your friends, not get back at you and rebuke you? 
You say your doctrine is pure and that you're clean, but oh, that God would speak. You see, we presume to speak on God's behalf for our friends. Isn't that interesting? Be careful doing that. (laughs) Oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you. God needs to tell you, man, what you're doing wrong. Be real careful because at the end of this book, God's going to say, Hey, you three, you got it wrong. He was right. Just be real careful how you do that. Remember, the Bible tells us that we're not to judge to ultimate things. Only God knows the heart. Of course, we judge the outward stuff. If, you know, me and my brother are walking and we're accountability partners and he's looking at bad stuff on his phone, yeah, I'm going to judge him and say, you, you got to stop doing that. Or if, Right? We're, we're allowed to do that. But the ultimate things of like salvation and, and, and the path that people are on, that's in the heart and only God can judge that. Be careful being a smarty pants, knowing all your tight wound theology and unleashing it on people who are hurting when you don't, won't even take the time to connect with their heart. See, the Bible says that you're going to go through some trials. Listen to this. You know this scripture. You're going to go through some trials, and when you come out at the other side, the God of all comfort is going to use you, the comfort that he gave you, he's going to allow you to comfort others. But he never says you'll be comfortable. Catch that. So when you're dealing with people in pain, look at this. It takes a lot of courage in the Lord. It takes a lot of love in the Lord. It takes a lot of patience and listening, and it's hard and it's difficult when you're doing the ministering. So you must be prayed up so that you just don't get give some little cute little st- sayings pat people on the head and have a nice week no you're in it with them man you're not just giving them little platitudes man i know it's you i know you got something hidden in your life if you just get rid of it everything's going to be okay he's just giving this this simple thing this rigid theology But oh, that God would speak. Can you imagine this? And open his lips against you that he would show you the secrets of wisdom because in the other words, me and God know it, you don't, Job. That's what Zophar is saying. For they would double your prudence. Know therefore that God exacts, exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. You're getting much less than you deserve. I can't even imagine saying that. Be careful. Be careful. Be swift to hear and slow to speak. And also, turn with me over to Romans 12. We all like to, I'm going to use this here in a minute, but it comes to mind right now. We all love to to, uh, quote this verse in verse 15. I'm going to quote it here in the next chapter. Rejoice with those who rejoice, verse 15, chapter 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But sometimes we forget to keep reading. Be of same mind toward one another. Do not set your, high, or your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. And then look at this. Look at this one. I, I wish Christians would please, before they open their social media, write this down and remember it. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Come on, folks. 
I, I can just hear it now. There, there are people here who tend to be legalistic or listening in. They're going, yeah, but tell them. You've got to tell them the truth. Yep, you do. No doubt about it. Bold, gentle, loving, bold. Truth. Everybody's for that. We're all for that. But it also says you're supposed to tell people truth and love. And the legalists, if you have a legalistic bent, you're saying, yeah, truth, and you forget the love. But if you're a wimpy Christian, you say, oh, love and no truth. And what happens is if you do one or the other, you're not doing any good to anybody. But if you come, here's the, here's the thing, as a humble abider filled up with the Lord. See, he's going to give you this beauty that's ascribed to him where you can go into very difficult situations and tell people very difficult things lovingly. But I want you to see something. Don't let your opinions be just, it's my way or the highway type of stuff. Of course we can't bend on theology or, or you know, essential doctrine. I, I understand that. But sometimes, as we've said, people just need a hug. They don't need the five points of Calvinism versus Arminianism every time you go in to, to witness to them. They just need a hug, and they need to love and, and, and to connect with them. You guys are saying move on, aren't you? Can you search out the deep things, verse 7 of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? Because they're higher than you. They're deeper than you. They're measurable. He's just amazing, Zophar is saying. Isn't that sound right? Yeah, it sounds right. Because it is right. If he passes by in prisons, yes, he knows deceitful men. Yes, he sees wickedness, of course. I look at verse 12. For an empty-headed man, man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born. In other words, Job, you're a fool. All you have to do is listen to me, Zophar saying, and if you do what I'm about ready to tell you, you'll be fine. If you would prepare your heart, stretch out your hands, if, an iniqui if iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away and wouldn't let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear because you would forget your misery, remember it all, and your life would be, look, your life would be bright and sunny. American Christianity, light would be bright and sunny. Though you were dark, you would be like morning, and you would be secure because there is hope. Sounds fantastic. Yes, you would dig around, take your rest. You'd lie down, and no one would make you be secure, make you afraid. You could, uh, yes, many would court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail, and they shall not escape, and their hope, loss of life. You're just going to be wiped out. Now, listen, this all is true, but it's not true of Job. There is no hidden sin. He's counseling him in the wrong way, but he thinks he's a know-it-all. Man, that says something to me about how to tread with people. I just need the Lord so much. I need to know what to say. I know when to need to shut up and not say anything and to be silent. Listen to this from Ray Stedman. From Ray Stedman. Let me read this to you. He talks about Zophar, and he says, well, that's the difference between theology and the experience of a man taught by the Spirit. 
Theology can be very clear and right, but it's all in the head. But when you deal with the pain of a human life, you must add a deeper dimension, a dimension of compassion and Christ-like empathy. You must, you must catch this, circle it, put it down in your book, authentically love the afflicted person. Christ-like love opens the door of the human soul to receive the light of God's spirit. Paul expressed this, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. We should, listen, listen, listen. We should be careful and prayerful in our approach to the suffering of others so that we don't add to it. Want me to say that again? We should be careful and prayerful in our approach to the suffering of others so that we don't add to it. Oh, how many times that's happened. What friends need, like Job, is people who will listen and love them. Look at chapter 12. Job comes back and he answers his critics. No doubt you are the people. (laughs) That word means nobility. This is my kind of verse because it's completely sarcastic. No doubt you are so noble and and wisdom is going to die with you. You guys are so smart, when you die, all wisdom's going to go away. That's what Job just said. Sarcasm, buddy. But I have, as a, I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you, Job says. Indeed, who does not know such thing as these? I know these things, he says. Verse 4, I'm one mocked by his friends who called on God, and he answered them. You don't think I know about this stuff? I've been the one who's been mocked. I'm just and blameless, but I'm ridiculed. I'm a lamp that's despised in the thought of one who is at ease. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. People who are at ease don't like to have the lamp shined upon them, but for those who aren't in ease, we want to know what's going on. The tense of... Here he comes, he says, he doesn't say it right here, but he, he is saying it right here. You guys are completely off base If your theology is right, remember the tents of robbers prosper. If they're sinners, they've been robbing, and yet they prosper. How could your theology be right, Job says. Get it? Everybody get it? And those who provoke God are secure in what God provides by his hand. But now ask the beasts, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you. And the fish of the sea will explain to you, who among all these does not know, verse 9, that the hand of the Lord has done this, in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. He just basically says here, even the animals know, if you just look at them and you watch them and they know, God gives breath to every living thing. He's saying, I can observe too. I can watch too. I can learn things too. And I look at the robbers and they're, they're prosperous So what you're saying must not be right. And then he goes on and he says, but God is so big. Look at this. Does not the ear test the words, verse 11, and the mouse tastes its food? I can test these things out. Wisdom is with the aged men, with length of days, understanding. With him, God, are wisdom and strength. Wisdom, what to do. Strength, having the power to do it. Right? Right? He has counsel and understanding, Job says. If he breaks a thing down, it can't be rebuilt. He's talking here about God's control and sovereignty. 
If he imprisons a man, there can be no release. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. In other words, just think through this for a minute. The theology of the three friends can't account for this. God's sovereignty can dry up anything, any brook, any pond, any if your water source, whether you're good or bad, according to the friends. He can do it, and he will do it, and he has done it. So it wrecks your theology in this way. God doesn't fit in a box. With him are strength and prudence. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away plundered and makes fools of the judges. He can even, not he can, he does even have control over every station in life, person who's at every station in life, a judge, kings. He makes fools of the judges. Verse 18, he loosens the bonds of kings and binds their waist with the belt. He leads princes away plundered and overthrows the mighty. He deprives the trusted ones of speech. It doesn't matter what status somebody has. He takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and disarms the mighty. This is how powerful and wildly powerful and amazingly powerful and sovereignly powerful God is. He can take peoples in any station of life. He directs their life, but not just peoples. He uncovers, verse 22, deep things out of darkness and brings the shadow of death to light. He makes, here comes, he makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. And if you've been traveling with us for the last two months, you're like, okay, quit reading. But you know this now. You know why you know this? Because you've been through Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. And God used enemies of the people of God, his people, Babylon and Persia and all these to bring judgment on his people. And then to restore a remnant, he uses a Persian king and has he him marry a Jewish lady who wasn't even supposed to be the queen. And he puts him into insomnia. This always blows me away. And he has him pick a book off the shelf, just the exact right book that shows that he didn't bless Esther's cousin. And Esther's cousins through that book is into power as the prime minister. And so why am I going through all of that? Because God's sovereignty can take nations and he controls the nations and he controls the books that are pulled off a shelf. Are you kidding me? Your life is not a bunch of coincidences. He's orchestrating your life. He's even taken your bad choices. What? He even takes your bad choices and can turn them around and use them for God's glory. His glory. Isn't that beautiful? Well, see here, he's saying he even makes the nations great. He enlarges nations. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs and uh, of the people of earth and makes them wander in a pathless wilderness. They grope in dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Now he gets to verse chapter 13 and he's answering Zophar's accusation that he was a guilty sinner back in chapter 11. Now he's going to answer him. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understand it, he says. 
What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But here it comes. Watch this. Remember last time we were here? Like the little crocuses that are grow. I think they're crocuses. I don't know plants. They grow out of the ground in the spring. And you look around, those buds up on Mount Washington, they're all terrible during the winter. And then all of a sudden you look up there and they start turning red. And you're like, oh, yes, life is coming. Okay, that's what this next verse is like. Here's this flash of the gospel. He says, oh my goodness, but if I could just speak to the Almighty. Now remember in the Old Testament, what did God say? Anybody who looks at me is going to surely die. Right? He had to put one guy back in the cleft of the rock and just let his essence pass by so he wouldn't be just blown away, right? And there had to be this mediator between God and man. These priests, I mean, you could come up to where the Holy of Holy was in the temple, but if you went in there, you'd die. And you would just come to the front of the tent, and you couldn't even see into that Holy of Holies, but you could see back there. And you could see how difficult it was to get back there, because you had all these things to go through. It was like, what's that? Anyway, that water thing where you climb and do stuff on TV. You just had to go back there. You brought your animal up there, and you, what is it called? What is it called? Yeah, wipe out. There we go. <clears throat> but you saw back there and you're like, wow, the presence of the Lord. I know it's back there somewhere, but I have no chance of being there. I'm going to take my animal up here. Priest is going to do something. One priest is going to go into the Holy of Holies one time a year for the Day of Atonement. It's so difficult to get to the Lord, but his hope comes out. Look at this. But I could just, if I could just speak to God, if I could just be in his presence, and he knows that that's difficult to do, and, and, and not only difficult, dangerous in his time, but I desire to reason with God. See, that's bold. But you for, forgers of lies, he's telling his friends, you, you, you people who whitewash lie, listen, listen, listen. That's what people with incomplete theology that just want to ram it down your throat all the time, they just kind of whitewash the surface but they never get underneath. That's what he's saying here. You forgers of lie, you're all worthless malpractice physicians. That's what he says. Oh, that you would be silent and it would be your wisdom. Now hear my reasoning, verse 6, and heed the pleasings or pleadings of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he searches you out, folks? Or can you mock him as one mocks a man? He'll surely rebuke you. If you secretly show partiality, will not his excellence make you afraid and the dread of him fall upon you? Now, here it comes. Look at this. Man, this is, I read this and my, you know, my competitive, I get revved up about this. Get him back, Job, get him back. But then I start thinking, man... Whew, I can be full of platitudes and proverbs. Your platitudes are proverbs of ashes. Don't just give form answers to people. Your defenses are defenses of clay. They don't hold up. They just break. Sometimes, folks, I'm learning through this book. The Lord's putting it on my heart. Maybe he's putting it on yours. Silence sometimes is golden. Just be there for people. You're saying, I, I can hear him now. What? Don't share the gospel with people? No, that's not what I'm saying. Not at all. <laughs> Sometimes just people need a hug. So 
So hold your peace with me, he says to his friend, and let me speak. Then let me come, or let come on me what may. I want to talk to God. I want to present my case before God. Why do I take my flesh in my teeth, like bite my tongue, and put my life in my hands? Here it comes. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. It just, it comes out of him. Look, he's in horrendous suffering, and yet somehow, some way, yet Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways for him. If I could just get in front of him. Spurgeon said on this verse, Job did not understand the Lord's reasons, but he continued to confide in God's goodness. There's another action point for us. Get so acquainted with God and his goodness that you're always counting on that. Him. His goodness. He also shall be my salvation. Parenthetically, you can look this up after tonight. Many people believe this is where Paul got Philippians 1.19. That's free. You look at it up after. For a hypocrite could not come before him. Listen carefully to my speech, 17, and to my declaration with your ears. See now, I have prepared my case. See that? I know that I shall be vindicated. He, who is he who will contend with me? If now I hold my tongue, I perish. And now from 1320 through 1422, he's going to give his defense before God. Here it comes. Hang in there with me. Hang in there. Only two things do not do to me, he says to God. Job says to God, then I will not hide myself from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not the dread of you make me afraid. See, let me up out of my misery for a little bit so I don't speak something out of pain. Isn't that interesting? We say things in pain that sometimes we don't mean, and yet Job knew that. Then I will not hide myself from you. Withdraw your hand. Oh, sorry. And not let the dread of you make me afraid. That's verse 21. Veil your presence so I'm not afraid. Then call and I will answer. Or let me speak. Then you respond to me. It's that same tango that Esther had with the king. Did he put the scepter on my shoulder or not? Because remember, it's a difficult thing or a bold thing to come into the presence of the Lord. You've got to remember that these people are very aware of the majesty of kings on earth. If I go in front of them and they didn't ask me to, I could be killed. And more importantly, they realize there's something between them and God. You get that? He does this, but he goes, I'm going to do it. I, I, If you say, I can come, I'm coming, and I'm going to say to you, how many, verse 23, are my iniquities and sins? Now, you might be saying to yourself, what what is he talking about? I thought there was no sin in his life. Well, there isn't any unconfessed sin, and yet he still recognizes that he's a sinner by nature. You getting that? We're sinners by nature who who do sins. We sin indeed also. And there's no unconfessed sin, but he says, how many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. In other words, if I go to court as a criminal matter, I'm in handcuffs. I have one great right in the United States and all places that practice due process. And you know what that is? I have a right to know what I'm being charged with. The most vilest criminal has that right in this country. And if that thing's breached or broken... That falls apart. And what Job is saying here to God is, can you just please tell me what's going on? Give me the charge. 
Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Wouldn't you be saying this? Wouldn't you, if you got to be able to talk to God and all these things, wouldn't you want to know? Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro, and will you pursue dry stubble? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. Is it because of something I did when I was young and I haven't remembered it? By the way, okay, I, I just, this is a little rabbit trail. I've had people come to me. Have you had people do this? Just rack their brains, rack their brains, rack their brains. You know, I think on June 4th, 1978, I committed a sin and I can't remember what it was. And so therefore I can't confess it to God. And so since I haven't confessed it, you think God's still mad at me? Or haven't you had people say, you know, I, I, every week I just go through all my sins. And okay, got it. Okay. But do you, do you know what 1 John 1.9 says? I want you to think about something. This is a little parenthetical. If we say that we... Oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from, circle the word there, all unrighteousness. You don't have to, I mean, God, God knows, folks. If, if there's something you've forgotten or, you, you know, God knows. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He takes our sins as far as the east is from the west, and he doesn't count them against us anymore. Now go back and hang in with me just for a few more minutes because we're coming to the part that's really touching. Make me know these things. Make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. In verse 26, you put my feet in the stocks and watch closely all my path. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. That's what sin does to men. You know that, and women, it, it, it rots. If you think you're getting away with sin, you, you won't get away. It'll be found out, and it ultimately leads to rotting and death. That's what sin does. And so even though he knows there's no this grievous sin, there's no past sin that he's hiding, he realizes that he's a sinful person and sin separates from God. And he just says, man, if I could just talk to God, and if he would state my case against me, and I knew, boy, I'd know the purpose of my suffering. You get it? Now watch this. Watch this. So then he goes. He's going back and forth. He even said this amazing, though he slay me, I will praise him, you know, type of stuff. But then he goes back into how bad he's feeling. It's just so real. Isn't that how people do when they're suffering? It's just so real. And then he comes here and he goes, isn't this crazy? Chapter 14, verse 1. Man who is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. And you know in Psalm 51, right? David said that he was born in iniquity, right? 
You, you know that, Psalm 51, verse 5. He comes forth like a flower fades away. He flees like a shadow and doesn't continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one, since this days are determined or his days are determined. The number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he can't pass, verse 5. Look away from him, verse 6, that he may rest till like a hired man he finishes this day. For there is hope for a tree... If it's cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its tender shoots will not cease. Is this a ray of hope, or is there more hope for a tree than a man? You get it? In other words, Job's saying there's more hope for a tree than men, because look down in verse 10, but man dies and is laid away. Look in verse 8, throw its root may grow old in the earth and its stump may die yet in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. You see the flicker of light? But man dies and is laid away. If sin isn't dealt with, there's death. Indeed, he breathes his last, and where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise. Okay, here we go. Hold on. Till the heavens are no more, they won't awake nor be roused from their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past. You're reading it and you're going, what are you getting so excited about? You, you know, when we talked last week, uh, G. Campbell Morgan says, look at this, that every question asked by Job. Every question asked by Job is answered by Jesus. You'll never read Job the same again. What happens now for people who are outside of Christ? The wrath of God resides upon them. And he recognizes that the wrath of God is coming for him. Oh, that I could just die and be laid away for a while, and that it would just pass over, and that you would appoint me a set time, and then remember me. Oh, you're not getting excited. Because if a man dies, shall he live again? Here's the gospel, folks. All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. And here it comes. Verse 15. You should mark this up. Love it. Cherish it. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. For now, for now, you number my steps, but don't watch over my sin. What, what am I getting so excited about? Turn over to John chapter 11. All the questions of Job are answered in Jesus. John chapter 11, go there. The question is, if a man dies, shall he live again? The wrath would pass over. If a man dies, shall he live again? Is, is life something more than the present experience of it? That's what people are asking. Do you know this, folks? Is life more than just here? And then we go into the grave and we don't see and we're annihilated and nothing happens. Is life more? Look at this in John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Here it comes. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. You see, for the believer, prior to the time that Jesus comes back for us, to die 
doesn't mean to die spiritually. It just means our bodies wear out. At the moment that we die physically here, we're as much alive as we've ever been, but we're in the presence of the Lord. Oh, my goodness. Look, li- listen to this. Listen to this. We really need to carefully observe the meaning of Job's question, G. Campbell Morgan's write, writes. In our translations, we have introduced a word again. That's not what Job asked. It wasn't an inquiry as to whether a dead man should come back to life. If you catch this, this is going to bless your socks off. But whether a man dead so far as the physical is concerned, does he still live? If a man die, if the flower is cut off, is that man still alive? The question has not to do with a possible return to life. That's what many of us think. That's what we think Christianity is, a return to life but is concerned with the idea of the continuity of life beyond what men call death. Is life, after all, something more than the present experience? Can it be that what we call death is only a change? If a man die, is he still living? In effect, what Job is saying, if I could be sure that this life was not all that the thing called death is, but a process through which man passes, then the present, however full of suffering would be bearable. I could stand up against all the bludgeonings of fate. I could bear anything if I thought that I shill or should still live when men said I was dead. That is the constant cry of humanity that comes right out of Job in the first book of or oldest book of the Bible. Here it is. Can men still live and not die? Listen to this. Now the question arises, is there an answer to the inquiry? When God came to deal with Job, he didn't give any explanation. What he did was make his own glory pass before the man. And it it is significant that when he did so, Job had no other question. He became willing to postpone them. The answer to Job's question came with, full and final authority in Jesus. And you see it in the Lazarus story. I read it to you. You see it in the Lazarus story. I want you to consider this. They were saying the same questions. Where is Lazarus? Does he still live? Those standing around were gazing at a dead body, and if they attempted to peer into the gloom, there was no ray of light, Morgan says. And then Jesus says, catch this, in response, this is the part. (laughs) I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he die, yet shall live. Listen, listen, listen. These words then did not refer to resurrection, although that also had been declared. They affirmed his continued life beyond what men took upon as death. The question When I die here, what's going to happen to me? All men and women are asking here. And Job, it pops up and he says, if men would die, if men die and he shall live again, then I know I have purpose and meaning because I'm going to go on into eternity and live with my God forever. That's what he says. Now look, go over to 2 Timothy real quick. Real quick, you need to see it. You need to read it. 
Look at 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. I want you to write it down in your Bibles. I think it's 1 Timothy 2. Oh, it isn't that. (laughs) 2 Timothy. Oh, man, am I in the wrong one? Well, here it is. I've screwed myself up. But what he says is, in the scriptures here, in the Timothy passage, you can tell me where it is, is that he abolishes death, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has abolished death. Which means there is no death. When you die, you go on into life. You just stay in life because of Jesus Christ. There you go, 2 Timothy 1.10. Read it. But has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought, here it comes, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, the good news. Abolishes death and brings light. Now, why am I getting all excited about that? Because the gospel is pouring out in Job. Job's asking the question and leading you right to the gospel. He's saying, if I knew this, if I knew the answer to this, then I know life has a purpose. I know life has a purpose. Here, Job is describing the joy a human being would feel to stand before God after God's wrath has already passed. Understand, Job doesn't think it's possible. He longs for relief, but he believes he'll never find it. He's voicing, listen, this is the part, the inarticulate longing of the human heart to be freed from guilt and judgment for sin. I'm convinced that the primary cry that's inside of us is that we would be reconciled back to the Father and we know there's a separation. And we run after relationships and boyfriends and girlfriends and husbands and wives, and those are all good things. We run after careers and cars and homes and 401ks, and those can be appropriate, I guess, but they never satisfy. Never. Only God will fully satisfy. He tells you in the book of John, if you'll just come take a drink from what the, the, the well that I'm offering, which is his life, you'll never thirst again. If you just come and take of the bread that I would give you, I'm the bread of life, you'll never be hungry again. You'll always be fully satisfied. You get it? He knows here, Job does, or he's pointing us here, that the primal cry is coming out of all men and all women, oh, that I could be reconciled to my good, good father. And many people don't even know it. And it's why we have such an unsettled place and a people. Because we're striving for everything without God. You say, well, give me some verses that have to do with suffering then. Well, what about this? Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith. Do you ever remember this? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Don't you love that verse? 
But, you know, I stopped there. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, look at this, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Do you understand that peace with God is tied to what we do in our sufferings? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope doesn't disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given, who he has given to us. Folks, right here in chapter 14, at the end of the first dialogue, the scream comes out, the cry comes out of Job, if a man dies but could live again, and the wrath would pass over that one, me, there's purpose. You would listen to this, and I said, you circle this, you shall call and I will answer you, that I could walk with you and that I could talk with you and that you could tell me that I'm your own. There it is. Here's the gospel. You shall desire the work of your hands and you number my steps. How about this verse 17? But my transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover my iniquity. But it's funny, he goes right back to complaining because he's in pain and suffering and he has no resource like we do, the Holy Spirit, to live it out. So he goes back and he says, as mountain falls and crumbles away and as a rock is moved from its place, as water tears away stones and as torrents wash away the soul of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him and he passes on, verse 20. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor and he doesn't know it. They are brought low and he doesn't perceive it, but his flesh will be in pain over it and his soul will mourn over it. And we close right here. Man, I've learned so many things. We can sometimes say the right thing, but they can be incomplete. We don't always connect to a person's heart when we're just spouting theology. It's good to know, of course. It's important to listen when ministering. Sometimes, folk, just tell people you love them. Hug them. Cry with them. You don't even have to say anything. Sometimes when you don't understand, say, I don't understand your pain. But I'm here, and I'll wash your dishes, I'll get gas in your car, I'll sweep your floors, and if you need me for anything, here I am. I know this, that the Lord in this story is after the heart of Job, or already the heart of Job is set, that he would love God more than any gifts that God could give him. Oh, that I would be that way. To worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness, and I'll just remind you of this one thing. Do you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Levites, one of the 12 of the tribe of Israel, can you imagine standing in line? Okay, uh, Benjamites, you get that piece of land. Danites, go over there, you got that. Oh, Levites, you don't get any land. What? We're going to be the ones serving in the temple areas and the tabernacle. What do you mean we don't get it? Look, look, look. And God says to them, no, listen, I'll be your inheritance. Levites, who were they? They were priests. Guess what you are? A priest. You're part of a holy priesthood, a, a chosen generation. And the Lord just says, look, would it be enough if I was your portion. Let's pray.
Well, Lord, we thank you for this night, and Lord, help us truly to understand and to know and to, and to come to that place where we can say, Lord, we just want you. We just want to talk with you and walk with you and receive from you and be with you and sit at your feet. And Lord, salvation for us is more than enough. But Lord, if you choose to give us more, fantastic. And we humbly accept those blessings. But boy, just to be with you, that's our goal. So Lord, help us to be like that more and more. And then Lord, help to solidify that in our lives so it makes a difference. So that when we're in the hard places, we can joy over and over again, rejoice even in the sufferings. We need you in Jesus' name. Amen.